Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. This is Fergus in Chicago. Uh, today's episode is part of my ongoing series on U.S. mass market automotive brands. Uh, to date, uh, hopefully you guys have enjoyed the ones we've done so far. But we've done episodes on Audi, uh, Volvo, Kia, Toyota, Honda, and today's episode uh, being on VW. And we've got some more planned as we go into the first quarter of next year. So we'll do some more uh, as we keep going forward. Let us know if there's one you'd like us to do, by the way. Uh, we talked today with Mary Bakarich. Uh, Mary is Group Strategy Director at Johannes Leonardo in New York. Uh, for those of you who remember the name of the agency, we've done episodes in the past on their Adidas work, which was brilliant. Uh, I'd encourage you to check that out. But today uh, we talk VW from its earliest days until present time. And when you look back to those earliest days to present time, you begin to see that, that uh, one way of looking at VW is that its villain has always been sort of mindless consumerism. Uh, from the 1960s, uh, the Think Small platform, to the 1990s Drivers Wanted platform, to the current day uh, Drive Something Bigger Than Yourself platform. It's always been about uh, values versus status. It's always been for those who sort of value the common good ahead of their own self-interest. So there's that spirit that goes through all of the work uh, over the decades. VW and the agency kind of defines it that that VW tries to connect with each generation's uh, drivers of change, those who want to challenge the status quo. Uh, and that's been the spirit of the platform going all the way back. Now, I do uh, want to mention that it's not lost on me that the 2015 VW diesel scandal was a major crisis for the brand and its credibility worldwide. Uh, it, uh, in many ways, contradicted everything that the brand claimed to stand for. But this isn't an episode about the crisis or about the recovery. The crisis didn't happen on Johannes Leonardo's watch. Uh, they won the business in early 2019, roughly four years after the crisis began. But they did have to sort of reframe the brand and its recovery and its intentions as part of their work uh, in the pitch. And we touch on that briefly during our conversation. Um, if you want to see the work uh, that was associated with that uh, sort of reframing um, uh, post-crisis, and uh, if you'd like to see that, you can go to the website on strategyshowcase.com and that work is there in the uh, VW episode as well as all of the work that we're going to be discussing uh, during the episode today. Uh, lastly, it was not VW or the ad agency's choice to not delve into the scandal. It was actually mine. Uh, it's not what I'm particularly interested in for this series on automotive. I really wanted to stick to the brand and the spirit of the brand over time. Um, so uh, this is VW with Mary Bakarich of Johannes Leonardo, New York. Enjoy. We're talking VW and um, uh, obviously I'm not 20. So I've experienced uh, VW for many years and I have um, sort of seen the sort of the pulses that VW has plugged into in terms of cultural pulses uh, mm -hmm. throughout the last number of decades. And it's, it's only when you see and, and talk about this brand as a whole uh, over a period of time that you begin to see the threads that go through each of those sort of cultural movements, not necessarily cultural movements that VW created, but, but definitely leveraged. And so I thought we could just start off by talking a little bit about some of that culture 
shaping history of VW uh, marketing in the U.S. and and where it all where it all comes from. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's it's such a rich history, and and where we find so much inspiration uh, for for the current work that we're doing right now. So the story naturally, of course, begins in post-World War II America. You have this booming economy, patriotism at an all-time high, the interstate highway systems being built. America's love affair with cars is very intense. And so here comes a German brand trying to succeed in post-World War II America and Hitler's brand at that. And in 1949, Volkswagen sold a whopping two Beatles in the U.S., two. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the thing is, it's a truly incredible car. It was radically different compared to what was coming out of Detroit. The Beetle was inexpensive, but not cheap in its design or its build. It could be maintained easily easily and affordably. Uh, it took up very little space on the road, but still had you know, maxim- a way of maximizing the interior space for the passengers. It was sophisticated in its simplicity and offered fuel efficiency before such standards were, were ever set by governments. And so how does a brand that sold two vehicles in 1949 become the biggest import brand by the 1960s? Advertising. Uh, it was really the brand that invented modern advertising. Yes, the, the it think did. small, think small, and that whole campaign uh, was named the most influential campaign of the last century. And many people still look to it today. It, it still feels as fresh today as it as it was uh, back when it was uh, first rolling out. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, so it's almost like that was that was, and it's 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 important to underscore how absolutely. Um, um, counterintuitive that work was at the time. It was people advertising at that time, because advertising was relatively new as a medium at that time. And I think that it's, it's, it was always about this sort of uh, selling the product benefits. It was about mm-hmm. sort of romancing the possibilities. It was about um, convincing and persuading. And then this brand comes in and has a completely different perspective on the tonality and the message in advertising. I mean, it was revolutionary, and it was it was DDB back then, right? Yeah, yeah. Doyle Dean Birnbach and and Bill, you know, at the time was yeah. uh, at the helm, and you know the 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 work that was coming out of DDB at the time was very radically different, and was a written, you could kind of see the beginnings of that revolution, you know, happening, and that's what attracted Volkswagen to DDB mm. was, you know, the recognition that they really needed to do something radically different to break through in, in the American market. And, and so that Beatle advertising was, you know, as you said, compared to the loud and garish and hyperbolic advertising, very shouty advertising of the day, the Beatle was restrained and charming. It treated the audience with respect. I think that's one of the, the, the true hallmarks of that work is, it it didn't try to you know dumb things down. It it, it there's a a great story about the um, you know the the early days of of the copywriting where the 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 manner in which the team would approach it would be as though they were writing a letter to a friend. There's this information I have and I really can't wait for you to find out about it. And so it had that warmth to it. Um, we like to say in the agency that uh, Volkswagen that that early advertising gave sheet metal soul. Yeah. And it really imbued this um, simple, honest, humble confidence. Uh, it entertained while it informed, and it really won people over. But it, I think it was also a recognition that even though it was a, it was designed to be a vehicle for the masses, 
its brand personality was not one that was necessarily designed for appealing to those to the mass because i think particularly in the us it wasn't going towards the convention where mass was appealing in terms of the big american brands it was it was recognizing that you needed that you could create your own franchise by mm-hmm. having a distinct voice with a distinct car, and that a distinct car needed a distinct voice, I would guess. Yeah, exactly. I think the you know the, the agency team looked at the car, looked at what they were up against, and recognized that um, they needed to find a foothold. They needed to find a group of people that would embrace it. Um, and so, really, the the advertising stood out, and it was noticed by everyone. But not everybody got it or appreciated it. And so. The, it created a clubbiness, a tribalness uh, around this brand. And the people who did embrace it, you had, you know, sort of the beatniks and then eventually the hippies. And so it took on this very like counterculture kind of vibe. And yeah. what we've seen in looking at the history is that the high watermark for the brand in its in its many cycles uh, in the U.S., when it's at its best, it is identifying with this group of people that's frustrated by the status quo and trying to, you know, move society in a different direction. Yeah, so it's almost, and and you guys have mentioned this in some of your your written work, but it's like, it's the idea that mainstream catches up with VW over time. And it seems to happen in each of these pulses. Yeah, and, you know, we had a lot of conversation early on about, you know, when you're when you're going up against the status quo, you can sort of throw a grenade and try to destroy things and blow it up. But that's not the Volkswagen approach. It, I guess, the better metaphor is that it opens a door. You know, it, it points out that there's this other path, this more enlightened way of living and behaving and driving, and it's inviting people to walk on through it. And because it does it in that way, it's not shaming the current behaviors or the ways people are doing things today eventually others, you know, sort of see the error of their ways or they're more inspired to follow along. So it gets that earlier crowd that's already there, that's feeling that frustration, but it doesn't hold up a mirror to the frustration. It channels that very palpable frustration that's being felt in these different eras. So in the, in the 60s, it was sort of pushing up against that mindless materialism that had set in after uh, World War II and that relentless pursuit of more and bigger. Uh, and then the next sort of era of success in the U.S. was in the mid '90s, uh, which was when you know Gen Xers were you know coming into their own and uh, you know sort of rejecting the corporate rat race and instead wanting to run their own race. You had you know grunge and garage startups and rap music emerging, uh, and so in those different ways, the brand uh, connected with that feeling. And so in the in the '90s, it was the Drivers Wanted campaign. Um, And I remember one of the classic lines from one of the early ads was, uh, it's about having kids without becoming your parents. Right, right. (laughs) So really, we kind of capitalized on that. that So back then, so back in the 60s and the 70s, there was this first sort of pulse of of work that that, Mm -hmm. came out. Then things, then then the brand sort of, um, uh, it sort of was able to, to build on that with some ups and downs. Mm -hmm. So as you just mentioned, then the next wave became in uh, kind of bubbled up in the, in the nineties and, and that classic work, equally classic work from, uh, from Arnold in Boston around uh, drivers wanted. So, so drivers wanted again, that was the era of wall street. That that was movies like wall street. Greed is good. Gordon Gecko and, 
and everything was about the about Wall Street and riches and everything could be at your fingertips and and then so you have this another generational pulse that's that's about finding a, a, a different path with with that work and again it's exactly. the idea of getting ahead of it while others try to catch up with it and that that work that work was brilliant for years oh it was fantastic i think you know for me what's so great about like uh two of my favorites from that era there was um bubble boy which yeah. you know was also in its own way quite radical because it was introducing a new car but didn't show the new car at all in the communication. So classic Volkswagen contrarianism does the opposite of what you would expect a car company to do right. when introducing a, a new model. And uh, and Pink Moon, you know, where the, the whole plot of the story is, you know, there's this group of friends uh, driving and they're having such a great time that they pull up to a party and decide to, you know, That's pull away right. and continue yeah. on the on the way. And so just very subtly and with no words, the brand is able to uh, convey so much and really connect and engage with that tribe, these people who feel uh, the same the same way. And, and da, 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 I just thought was fun. Was it of just, course. You know, culture just, I mean, it was an amazing thing. And it was so fresh. engineered Volkswagen Golf. It fits your life, or your complete lack thereof. On the road of life, there are passengers and there are drivers. There was nothing like any of that work back then. And and, and the brand did, did, did well for a couple of years on that from a marketing perspective. And then sort of things sort of diluted down a little bit over time. But, but um, and then it, I, the business obviously moves from from agency agency to agency over time, uh, but it has been it, it has always been great work. And so, I mean, when you when you look at the, the core elements of that of the brand's personality, when you look at it over time, uh, how would you define the personality? Like, what has yeah. it always stood for? I mean, I like to think of it in in four simple words: uh, honesty, humility, humor, and humanity. Honesty, um, humility. Humor, humor, and humanity. Humanity. Um, as a as a brand, you know, the from an honesty standpoint, that the brand even took it to the point of, you know, its iconic self-deprecation. You know, there's never any spin, no hyperbole, no embellishment needed. Just look at the car, look at what it does, look at what it offers. You know, lemon, for example, was probably one of the best examples of that. You know, to 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 highlight a quality control story about how they didn't let anything out of the factory that didn't meet its exacting standards and being willing to sort of, you know, poke fun uh, a little bit at the, at the brand humility, you know, it's actually more of a humble confidence. The, the brand is actually very proud, uh, but it's not uh, braggy or, or beating its chest. It's always in, you know, proud of what it does in service of that better ownership experience. I think even to this day, philosophically, the company is not out there trying to chase being the first 
to market with an invention or uh, seeking these best in class claims. Of course, when we have them, we love them, but it's much more about this holistic driving experience and making the best possible car for as many people as possible. And it, it, it seems like the, the idea of, of, uh, of, of VW being for those who put the common good ahead of their own interests, it's something that has always been in place. And it's, it's, you guys are putting an, an amazing fresh perspective on it now, but that seems to also work when you look at the VW of the 90s and you look at the VW of the, of the 50s, 60s, it just seems to be that, that it's always been more progressive. It's always been connected with an aspect of culture that was more youthful and, and um, was looking for something that was more progressive in its values. Is that fair to, fair to say? I think so. And I think in many ways that, that has always been you know, who it's attracted yeah. as a, in terms of a, a customer base, but also it, it does often fit with the kind of vehicles that the company is making. I think, you know, as we think about right now, we're, we're trying to push into you know, electrification. And so there is product alignment, cultural alignment, audience alignment, you know, across all of that. Let's talk about, let's talk about the, um, the length of time that you guys have been working on the business. Tell us when did, uh, when did Johannes Leonardo uh, get or win the business and was it for the entire brand or was it an assignment so we we have worked with volkswagen since february 2019 oh, and wow. it's all in for the the u.s so we do everything from brand campaigns down through uh tier two sales event work and was this a was it a pitch or or, um, or how did it how did it end up on your doorstep yeah, they came to us with a, a big open brief, uh, which was help us make this brand matter again. Uh, and so during that process, we we were tasked with cracking a long-term brand point of view that could you know, make current drivers feel good, sell the vehicles currently on the lots, build excitement for the future, and restore Volkswagen's badge value and cultural impact. So, you know, just a small assignment like that. Um, <laughs> and do it in six which months. Was, yeah, or less actually, but <laughs> no. But it was it was a always with the intention of a long term uh, partnership. It wasn't just a you know one off assignment. So what was the what was the business challenge at that time when they when they come in? What was the the state of the business and what was the problem they were trying to fix? Sure. Well, in 2015, Volkswagen was trending toward becoming the biggest automaker in the world, and that pressure to grow led to some behaviors that they now regret. Uh, and they were called out uh, in probably one of the biggest breaches of trust in business history, which many people refer to as Dieselgate. So the scandal essentially in a nutshell was these vehicles were uh, marketed as clean diesel, eco-friendly, but they were actually emitting like 40 times the legal limit of the toxic nitrogen dioxide that was coming out of the, the tailpipe. And so the company cheated on these emissions tests, and then when they were found out, they covered it up. Now, I will say they were not the only automaker to engage in this. Doesn't excuse the behavior, but they they were the ones that got caught. Yeah. And then, of course, the the cover up and the lying. You know, in our view, it was not just a you know a crime, and it was also sort of a sin against the brand because we talked about this honesty, the simplicity, uh, the humility of the brand and its personality. And this was a scandal of lies and hubris. So it was, it was a complete violation of everything that the brand had stood for in, in America. And so from a product perspective, this was about this was about diesel vehicles alone, right? 
Correct. So yeah. the U.S. is not a big diesel market compared to Europe, and uh, so did it. Did it actually uh, personally affect many uh, Americans, vehicle owners? Yeah, Volkswagen recalled 500,000 vehicles in the U.S. alone. Wow. So it was pretty far-reaching, um, and uh, it, you know, some dealers almost lost their businesses. It was, the sales went into free fall. It was a, a pretty big fallout. From an outsider who wasn't working on the brand uh, and thinking about it, just sort of looking at what was going on, this was this was an issue for a while, but it seemed to recover pretty quickly in terms of of getting out of the news and not having as deep an impact as I thought it might have. And that was my perspective from the outside looking in. Was that the same perspective from the inside looking out? So a couple things. I think one is it definitely damaged the culture inside of the company. So you had, you know, employees were not feeling proud to work there. Dealers had been struggling. It was hard to move cars off the lots without putting some big incentives behind them. So while they were doing everything that they could to keep the business afloat and keep keep things moving, it was not what one would really think of as thriving and healthy. So there was that. Um, and I believe that the you know the the opportunity was really how do we help give this brand some confidence again and give it a role in culture because it had really focused more on not standing out and not getting too much attention because every, I mean, and you still see it to this day when they post an, an announcement on social media, there's inevitably comments about Dieselgate and lying and, and things like that. And so there is going to be, you know, a pocket of, of people who don't forgive the brand, but you know, we, we saw when we chose to do a, a rebirth effort for the brand before we launched our drive bigger campaign, we felt it was really important to clear the air, acknowledge the scandal, and demonstrate that the brand had taken steps to, you know, embrace what it had learned and to turn a new, you know, turn the page to a new chapter for the company. There were a lot of people in the ad industry that really scratched their heads and criticized us for reminding people of the scandal, but we really felt it was important for Volkswagen to tell its own story and reclaim the narrative for itself. Yeah, and, and I think share with share with the listener what the the core business initiative, the, uh, um, what it was that was at the heart of this shift. Yeah, well, up to this point, um, if you if you had been following the brand from sort of a business to business standpoint, or if you were an auto enthusiast, you had seen at auto shows some of these electric concept vehicles that they were revealing. The, the scandal ultimately pushed the company to right the wrongs of the emissions scandal, and they made a big push for electrification. I mean, in fact, Volkswagen has literally gone all the way down to the platform and created a new electric fleet from the bottom up. And so big, you know, billions of dollars of investment, big ambitions for this pivot. And so the approach we took was, hey, there's this, there's this B2B story that we think consumers really ought to know. And you know, we took that business truth and and you know told it in a more emotional way to to connect with people. So is is the pivot to an all electric? Um, is it all electric vehicles? Period by a certain date, or is it uh, the introduction of a of a fleet offering? So I can't get into all the details of of the business strategy, but it it is a long term ambition to introduce a full fleet of electric vehicles. 
naturally, I feel like any big global company uh, has a few different approaches in play at any one time, and they start to see where the market is and also regulations coming in in different places. I mean, you just heard about California phasing out gas vehicle sales, I think, by 2030 or 2035 was recently announced. So right. you're, you're starting to see the sea change. And you know there are some automakers who were a step or two ahead of the curve, some who were leading the charge and others who are, they would really love the world to pause right now and, and not have any changes in the landscape because things are looking quite good for them. So you know, ultimately, some of these changes are true company intentions. And some of them, you know, as governments put new regulations in place, uh, it'll accelerate a pivot. Yeah. And I think I, I you know, cause I think I worked on, uh, I worked on an automotive brand and um, we went through a scandal and that particular scandal, um, there was always skepticism about the the steps that the that the uh, the company laid out, and there was recognition that there was going to be there was going to be sort of a negative reaction, whether it was from consumers, whether it was from NGOs or policy community. But so when I read about what you guys did, what I loved about it was this was a this was an abrupt an abrupt shift. It was a significant. It was a. It was not a. Not a sort of an incremental initiative, but it was a wholesale change. Yeah, this is not. This is not performative. This is not. Let's you know, uh, flash something over here and distract people while we're going to go continue, <laughs> continue on our old ways. Uh, there's been a big investment, also big cultural shifts inside the company as well to to prepare for this, to prepare for this kind of change. So I, I think this, this is, um, this is a good, a good point to sort of look back and sort of thread things together, because I think that, I think that the history of the VW brand in terms of its, its values, in terms of its more progressive view of the world has actually helped it here because it is actually rebooting itself towards a more progressive form of uh, transportation, a more progressive sense of responsibilities within society. So, so let's talk about what we let's just call it the phase three. We talked about we talked about uh, think small. We talked about drivers wanted in the nineties. Uh, when you pitch, what are you sort of thinking about in terms of the new platform for going forward? When you pitch the, for the business in in twenty nineteen. So, you know, as we thought about, you know, these, these cycles of history and the brand recognizing where there's this frustration in, in society, this group of people that, you know, they're, they're sort of pedaling on the little hamster wheel and they're looking around saying, I don't really like what we're doing right now. Right. <laughs> um, we looked at what is that thing today? You know, who is that group of people and what, what is it that has them so dissatisfied with the status quo? And really the big unlock that we had was that the country has truly been driven to the edge by self-interest. And what we mean by that, and, and these are examples that cut across all different aspects of life. So naturally you have, you know, business scandals. There was a big scandal at Wells Fargo, Boeing, you know, putting their, their safety features behind a paywall <laughs> that ultimately and, and, and very tragically led to uh, plane crashes. You know, you have celebrities during the wildfires out in California who were paying for private firefighters just to protect their own property while the rest of the neighborhood burned. You have um, wealthy parents 
bribing their kids' ways into elite universities, uh, icing out, you know, per perhaps you know, children who were um, better deserving of of a place in that class. And so, when you see all these different examples, um, that that kind of overarch of you know, sort of a 30, 40 years of this mantra of looking out for number one and chasing profits at all costs has really sort of come to a head in this moment. I mean, even when you think about what's happened in the coronavirus moment here in America, you know, mm -hmm. in January and early February, you had senators on both sides of the aisle trading stocks on the knowledge about the looming pandemic and keeping people in the dark about the dangers that awaited, or even a simple act of wearing wearing a mask or not wearing a mask, you know, do I choose to protect myself and you, or am I not concerned about being an asymptomatic transmitter of, of this disease? Yeah. And I think it even, it even, even though those are sort of the, the business and institutional reflections of, of what you're saying, I think there's also the, the issues of, of social activism, inequality, Correct. climate change, all of these factors, which just are, are universal yeah, uh, universal cultural issues for youth. They've Correct. been and, that way oh, all the time, right? They've been that way all the way back to the 60s, as it was in the 80s and 90s, and now it's that same lens for that same generation, right? Yeah, it, that's exactly right. I mean, you see this group of, of young people today, and they've really moved past this us versus them culture war. The, you know, they're, they're overwhelmingly in support of you know, recognizing the climate crisis and changing our behaviors accordingly. They're overwhelmingly in support of equality and rights for LGBTQ folks. They are, you know, interested in having equality in the household, you know, equal equalizing the gender roles. Um, they certainly are, you know, really fed up with the injustices and inequalities in the system. And they they are actively trying to change the world. They recognize uh, and are aware of the struggles and inequities of the system, and they're they're willing to check their own privilege and fight for those who who have less. So how does how does this sort of this this group how does this group look at VW and VW's initiative around around uh, the shift to electric? I mean, are they judging VW, or do they or do they give VW a break because of the equity it's built up over the years? You know, I don't know that with young people, we have that same equity and, you know, attachment. I think actually with, you know, the, the boomers and, and the older generations who remember the brand from back in the day. So I actually don't know that we're still trading off of goodwill when it comes to the younger generation. However, they, they do respect brands that operate with purpose. They do... Uh, value brands that, sorry, there's a fire. Oh, that's okay. That happens every time. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> they do, um, you know, value brands that are willing to truly take a stand. So even if it comes at some cost. And so I do think this notion of a, a set of values where the greater good is being put ahead of self-interest is galvanizing. And even if a young person has no prior attachment to or engagement with Volkswagen or potentially has no interest in um, an electric vehicle, they do admire companies that are going big, that are making big commitments. You know, Volkswagen was the first automaker to sign on to the uh, going carbon neutral by 2050 with the Paris Climate Agreement. So there's, there's these big and bold actions that 
you know, that, that people are just sort of tired of, of businesses sitting on the sidelines or, you know, taking advantage of uh, the discord that that's happening more broadly. I, I suppose the, I suppose the boldness of the initiative to electric um, is, is going to um, sit favorably with the vast majority Mm-hmm. of this target and and unlike in every situation i think planners have to deal with this all the time you can't come you can't you can't um um you know be loved by everybody you can't be right. liked by everybody so you have to accept the reality that you may there may be a third of your target who just looks upon your initiative as not being credible okay fine you've still got 70 percent roughly so play to the 70 percent as long as the initiative comes from a place of integrity and mm-hmm. uh, I, I, so I, I think it's important for people to realize that there's always going to be naysayers. And I think it comes up a lot in these discussions. It's like, but aren't people going to look at that with skepticism? Yeah, some of them will. Some of them uh, will be significantly skeptical. Some will be some ske- somewhat skeptical and some won't be skeptical at all. But play, play to the future uh, exactly. instead of to the, where it is today. Exactly. You know, there's a really good example, actually. So when we, when we launched Drive Something Bigger Than Yourself, the the brand platform that we're using just a few weeks after that um the uh the ceo of volkswagen was confronted with an interesting challenge because the the trump administration was uh actually actively rolling back the more aggressive emission standards that the obama era um the epa had established during the obama administration and california decided to stick with the stricter standards and you know when we met with uh, this, with him, uh, you know, a few weeks after, he said it was a no-brainer. You know, with a platform like Drive Bigger and thinking about the common good, uh, it was it was easy to side with the next generation. It was easy to to stick with the stricter emission standards of California. And so, while we don't get political in in the advertising, I think it's an example of a corporate action where this big brand platform actually helped steer the company in terms of how it made how it made decisions so uh, drive something bigger than yourself was that what was presented in the pitch was that what the pitch was about at the center of it all that that was that was the yes that was the brand idea that we um that we presented in the in the pitch process and you know we we demonstrated how it could work for all sorts of different aspects of the business from you know a sales event to a product launch to uh, big brand acts and cultural moments so tell us about what you want it to mean. Well, I think it's, you know, it's an it's an invitation and a, a rallying cry, really. So I think people inside the company feel a sense of pride that they're part of something bigger, that they are, you know, part of this this organization that is paving the way for a sustainable future in the mobility space. I think when it comes to um, the consumer audiences that we're talking to, I think it's a a way for them to feel pride when they drive the vehicle. Um, I think with the dealers, it it helps them, you know, think of their role in their communities. You know, many of these dealers, they're they're essentially small businesses locally. And so even as we think about what happened during COVID and the way that they responded, some of them were turning you know, the, the Atlas fleet into community response vehicles that were doing deliveries and you know, helping people, they were, you know, providing free gas to emergency workers. And so when you have this overriding desire to to do right by people, to not put the needs of the business ahead of 
you know, the needs of the people, uh, it provides a really inspiring springboard uh, as we think about communications and, and actions that, that we take. So I, I, I'll, I think something you said, I'll, I'll read it out here. It says that uh, you were talking about this drive something bigger than yourself. And you're talking about the audience you wrote. Uh, they value the collective and make sacrifices big and small to put the common good ahead of their own interests. So there seems to be that sense of, of uh, drive something bigger than yourself. So there's a sense of responsibility uh, that uh, a sense of shared values, a, a desire to do the right thing, a desire for action, and this sort of, you know, sort of uh, selfless, being selfless in terms of your view of society uh, rather than self-interested. Exactly. And, and you know, we all play a part in in shaping the future, you know, to, to borrow from the driver's wanted era, like, don't be a passenger, right? We, we want people who are, who are stepping up. Oh, that's uh, right. I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah. Passenger. Yeah. yeah. What was that? Pass- what was that? Like? On the road, of, on the road of life, there are passengers and there are drivers. And then the spot would conclude with. I love that. Wanted. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so it is, it's a, it's a beautiful uh, uh, lens, a more modern day lens on that, sa- the spirit, that same mm-hmm. spirit. Yeah, exactly. We like to think of them as drivers of change. These people who are actively trying to lead society in a new direction. And it doesn't mean that they are, you know, doing it on a grand scale. They're doing it in their own ways and and with the behaviors that they're modeling, even with the ways that they're raising their children. You know, we found one statistic uh, during the course of our, our, our audience research where the shift in values of how parents today are raising their kids is that they're doing it with kindness and good citizenship as the goal and things like a rewarding career and attaining a good salary are all the way at the bottom. And it's, it's such an inversion of, of the way that millennials themselves were raised. I mean, I think there was like a time magazine cover about CEO kids and all the things yeah. that parents could do to set their kids up to climb the corporate ladder and to um, achieve in life. And so, you know, the, the notion of what achievement looks like or, you know, raising uh, a family you know, compassion, kindness, um, those those values really coming to the forefront as being successful today. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's great. And then the um, more recently, you've sort of launched um, the uh, the Atlas uh, line. Uh, I think it's mid-sized mm-hmm. SUVs, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And, yep. you know, so I think this is a great example of how, um, of how a sort of a brand platform um, makes its way into the vehicle line because a lot of people I'm talking to, as it relates to the the um, the automotive category, are talking about whether they're a branded house or whether mm. they're a house of brands. Right. And so, right. and and it comes down to the idea of the the role that 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 nameplate that that brand, be in this case being VW, the role that that set of values plays at the nameplate level. So can you tell us about Atlas and um, uh, tell us about how this sort of halo effect of drive something bigger than yourself has sort of worked its way down to the nameplate level? Yeah. So what's interesting about Atlas, so Volkswagen actually was kind of late to the party on on SUVs, but Atlas um, has been around for a few years. And this year in early 2020, they launched the Crossport variant. So Atlas is a seven-seat vehicle and uh, Crossport is five. So what we did was we thought, okay, if, if drive something bigger than yourself is our 
overarching North Star, the, the values that, that inform everything. A couple you know, simple ways of approaching um, the Atlas family was first to think about, okay, well, who buys this vehicle? Why do they buy it? And so we started just from uh, sort of like lay the facts down on paper and really start to think about the motivations and the, the nature of the person. And, and what about this vehicle really stands apart? So with the seven seat vehicle, space is the reason why people buy it. It's a seven seat vehicle. You likely have a family, um, probably some pets to, to bring along too. And so what we wanted to do was think about that benefit of space and how to, how to talk about it in a way that speaks to the values of caring for the collective and, and, and driving bigger. So the, the primary value that we identified is uh, inclusivity. So when we got to the creative work, um, we were kind of tapping into, you know, there's this profound division in the country and we made a statement that there's room for everyone. And that line, you know, sort of worked at two levels. You know, it was speaking sort of more broadly to, hey, it's a big country. There's room for all different kinds of people, all different kinds of views. And then literally in this vehicle, there's room for everyone. You know, you're the kind of person who who brings people along for the ride. And the spot, the spot that resulted, uh, was it called Family? Is that what it was called? I'm trying to think of that TV spot. Uh, yeah, so... Um, we we call it room for everyone. Room for um, everyone. Okay. Yeah, and it was yeah it was created with real families, um, diverse backgrounds, a true cross section of American life, and the the chaos of uh, of a household, and you know how how universal family life kind of is, no matter no matter where you live or or where you might have originally come from, and there it brought a, a level of authenticity to the creative having these real families, and then. Um, it was set to a Johnny Cash track. So it also had this like real warmth and, and soul to it. Diego! These are my people. This is a land where my forefathers lie. These are my people. In brotherhood, we're heirs of a creed to live by. A creed that proclaims that by a loved one's blood stain, this is my land, and these are my people. Yeah, it, it, it was it was a great spot. And then tell us about what. Um, uh, what the other half of the family was, because it's kind of interesting. These are like different yeah. siblings from the same family. Exactly. So for cross sport, um, so this is a five seat vehicle, and the the five seat segment in that midsize SUV space was exploding. So it was a great segment to be to be launching in, and design was really the overriding purchase motivator. And what was great about cross sport was in the product clinics, this was a showstopper. This was like a hands down winner. Everybody kept picking that as the one with, you know, the most curb appeal. So we have this stunning SUV um, and we have a consumer who's motivated by design. But when you think about where the Atlas buyer sits, we, you know, I don't personally care much for segmentation studies. I think it's like an ar arbitrary separation of, of, of people. Uh, we think of it as sort of one shopper on a spectrum from a life standpoint. So the, the Atlas is sort of in that midlife growing family stage where their needs outweigh their wants. They need space. They need to 
haul people around. Whereas when you're on the bookends, when you're sort of just sort of starting out and achieving some degree of early, you know, professional success, and when you're an empty nester, that's when your wants can outshine your needs. And you could focus a little bit more on thinking about your car as a bit more of a reward. So we thought about this notion of um, the vehicle as a reward and the the sort of beauty of it, the, the, the curb appeal of it. And you know, but how does that square with drive something bigger than yourself, right? That was actually the most, I think, interesting challenge about that particular model introduction was how do we take this thing that is sort of a little bit more about you as an individual, this reward, you know, this beautiful car, and how do we talk about that in a way that uh, speaks to these drive bigger values? And so what was interesting was when we looked into the shopper data and saw who was buying Volkswagen vehicles, they tend to have higher income than some of the other uh, some of the other shoppers. They probably are somebody who could afford a higher end vehicle, a, a you know more premium model, but they choose not to opt for the badge, not to opt for the flash of of a luxury mark. And so, in this, uh, it, we actually were inspired by an old Carmen Dia ad um, that the, the Volkswagen sports car from back in the day, and the headline was uh, "The sports car for people with better things to spend their money on than a sports car." Love that; it's great. <laughs> and that was kind of the essence of CrossSport. You know, these were people who probably could stretch a little bit higher and get the the slightly more prestigious badge uh, sitting in their driveway, but that wasn't important to them. They were not interested in keeping up with the Joneses or the Kardashians or, you know, whomever. Uh, they they kind of were independently minded and enjoyed uh, things that just made them happy. They weren't trying to impress somebody else. And so that's where the line excessive where it matters came from, because there are these great design touches and little features that that sort of reward the driver. But the brand is not doing it gratuitously. It's not flash for the sake of flash. There's like a real utility to it. So uh, the storytelling behind that um, that work was great. We we um, launched a, a series of films uh, centered around a story of a celebrity accountant and his and his client. Yeah, it's it's terrific. It's terrific work, and and we'll talk about the details of it in a second. But I'm I'm super curious about. The, uh, you, you just mentioned about the idea of not being a fan of formal segmentation, which goes back to the idea of, of how you learn about the audience. Was this during your planning for the Atlas launch, mm-hmm. intelligence gathering? What kind of what kind of uh, when was this happening? Was this pre? This has got to be you got to be pre pandemic. So correct. What was yeah. what were you guys doing as a planning team to really understand that that target and understand their issues? Yeah, I mean we we always try to do broad cultural surveys, you know, in it, you know, kind of scanning the landscape of what are people watching? What are people thinking about and talking about? And, you know, when, when you observe in social media, you know, sort of that, that notion I, I mentioned, keeping up with the Joneses, but, you know, now it's not about your na- next door neighbor, Mr. Jones, it's, you know, a million Joneses all over the world. And, and there was a lot of data that we had uncovered around just how um, many people found that the time spent on social media made them less happy. Um, it made them dissatisfied with their life because they either felt like they were missing out on something or 
they weren't having access to the same things as other people. So there was this culture of excess and almost a glorification of the one percent. Even you know the kinds of shows that are are popular from a from a premium cable standpoint, you have things like you know Succession and Billions, and even from a more mainstream standpoint, you have Real Housewives and Keeping Up with the Kardashians and all of those like luxury real estate shows where everybody's just bought into this more is more kind of lifestyle. Right. And so we we saw that there was just, um, again, classic VW contrarianism, that there's this other way to live. There's, there's this so, way to live and there's this other way. So so does does that start, because some people will start that off by saying, okay, so we 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 feel our VW driver is somebody who, who shares our values, right? And so you begin the research process by initially screening around those values. Do you mm-hmm. feel this? Do you agree with this? And then you, if they get through that screener, let's say, then you start having a conversation. But, that, but there's another way of doing it, which, which you may, I think you might be pointing towards, which is that you start off with the greater issues in culture and you begin to understand that if you look at it that way and the issues that are there that you have cred- that you, you feel you have credibility in in putting the brand in the context of, then you may end up with a broader share of market because you haven't initially uh, screened people out because of their attitudes today. Correct. Yeah. And I don't know that people are such great uh, introspective. Um, right. You know, they're, they're, in terms of their ability to pinpoint, I, I think the magic always is in advertising when we, when we collectively as an industry are doing our jobs well, right? And insight is a previously unarticulated truth. It's the ability to uh, read between the lines and, and observe what's happening. Uh, you might pick up a few points of data, but rarely are you going to ask the perfect question and get the perfect response. That it's It's never... That, that that set of, of dots that line up perfectly. It's it's kind of pulling from a few different sources and uh, and and also going with a few hunches. You know, we are observing X, Y, or Z happening. Let's dive in a little deeper and get curious. Why is that happening? What's going on? What's underpinning that? What other examples of that phenomenon or behavior are we witnessing? So you know, I, I had a had a discussion with uh, Andy Lindblad at Wyden, who works in the Nike business, and so he talked about their process as being. It's like everybody, I'm paraphrasing him, everybody starts with the same blank sheet of paper. And it isn't that planners run off for a couple of right. days and then come back. Everybody sits around the table. It is, and and it's, it's discussion-driven, recognizing that there's, there's, there's strengths on each side of the room. It's, it, there's there's a strategic strengths and rigor. There's creative strengths and rigor. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering with you guys, is it is it that uh, planning, go away, come back in a couple of days and give us your perspective? Or is everybody involved on a, on a, a clean sheet of paper basis from the very beginning? Genuinely. Yeah, and I, and I, I mean, yeah. genuinely though. I, I know that I know that everybody says, oh yeah, we're, we're all doing it together. But, but tell us how it actually works for you guys. I mean, it's never the same way each time. So I guess that's the first thing to say. That's you know, a good we're point not, to make, yeah. We're not dogmatic about a process. We don't have like a set of tools with a trademark at the end of it. Like that's just not our way. Um, really at JL, the approach is always to try to just get to the truth, get to the plain, simple truth. What is inherently good about this brand or this product? What do we know about its history? So we always start every process with with really respecting 
the brand and its origin, there was some kind of success that got it to the point that it's at, right? So this is a little bit more the how we got to the drive bigger, you know, kind of story. But uh, yeah, the the notion of when it when it is a blank piece of paper and there's there's nothing going on, or nothing have, has been cracked yet. We do try to get all those perspectives and hunches together, and then the strategy team does go away for a little bit and starts investigating some of those hunches, right? So there, there is ownership and accountability among the different constituencies at different points in the process. So it's not to say it's a giant kumbaya the whole time. Everybody has different skills and, and different areas of expertise. So a looser discussion in the beginning, collect everybody's thoughts. I mean, in particular, I love always picking the brain of Jan and Leo, our co-founders, because they, they just interrogate stuff with a very different lens than I would ever. And so just, getting that different perspective is, is always useful or whoever the, the creative director is on the assignment too. They, they often just think about things from a slightly different perspective than a strategist does. So that gives us the fuel to then go do some deeper investigation. And then we have another conversation about what we're, what we're finding. Yeah. I, I remember uh, reading something maybe a couple of years back about the approach that uh, McKinsey takes for strategy, right? Obviously they come from a different perspective from a more of a, business consulting perspective, but the way they say that they, they start off uh, projects is that um, someone comes in with a series of, of hypotheses, strategic hypotheses, and it is, the, it is the role of the team to disprove those hypotheses or to disprove all of them. And if you can't disprove it, then it's the one that goes forward. It's an interesting way of doing it, mm. Mm. but it's, I just wanted to share that with the listeners. Just you, you, what, what you were saying just brought it to mind for me. It's this idea of, it's sort of a, it's, it's your, the, the, the intelligence in the room is garnered towards disproving rather than proving. And uh, so it's an interesting way to think about it. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, we never operate with the kinds of timelines that we would want to yeah, do that's a perfect true. linear that's right. process, right? Yeah, so, we don't get McKinsey so, timelines, no. Yeah, and, and or even their resources. I mean, in yeah. terms of what what they have at their disposal to tap. So when you think about how little time we have, but that's always I I feel like what is so amazing about working in an agency is when you have this mix of different people with different you know their brains work a little differently. I think at McKinsey, you often have everybody who's bought into the same method and went to some of the same schools and, um, you know, follows a lot of the same sort of ways of ways of operating. I think the messiness in advertising is where the magic comes in. I mean, I've with various clients have looked at analyses and presentations from BCG, from McKinsey, et cetera. And it's interesting and there's good information, but it's always missing that leap that, that sort of, how do you take information and, uh, bring it to that that level of um, inventiveness, or you know, taking the information to a place nobody else could have imagined, and that's why creativity is one of the best tools we all have for solving business problems. So for for Atlas, the campaign platform is there's room for everyone, and then for Crossport, you mentioned that the platform is excessive where it matters. So let's talk about what you wanted excessive where it matters to me and then we'll talk about the creative sure and so you know when we when we think about excessive where it matters it it really does speak to how independently minded our audience is so they care about how they show up they are the kind of person who takes pride in 
presenting themselves well. They know that we live in a world where appearances matter, uh, but they are not a slave to labels or to, you know, trying to impress others. That's not the end game for them. So they want to show up well, but they're, they're not going to engage in um, behaviors that sort of turn people off or make it all just about themselves, if that makes sense. So I think this notion of um, a, an audience who is definitely a lot savvier in how they spend their money, they think of themselves as somebody who makes smart decisions. And that's definitely another, you know, sort of historical truth around Volkswagen, this notion of feeling smart, uh, the brand that kind of aligns itself with the, the smarter path. Um, and so what we love about Excessive Where It Matters is that it acknowledges that you do deserve a reward. You you do recognize that you want to have nice things, but you're going to place that emphasis in the right spots and you're not just going to take that notion of, of indulgence and excess to an absurd extreme where you become like a caricature. <laughs> so this yourself. all launches, if I, as Lisa launched for, in terms of what I remember, didn't it launch at the Super Bowl? Was that where the first spot launched? No, we launched it uh, in March, and actually we had plans to do a very big March Madness push, and then everything got canceled with COVID. <laughs> so it was a multi-part story, and then um, you know we, we basically were on air for a few weeks, and then everything got pulled uh, when the lockdowns began, and okay. all the dealerships were closed. <laughs> so... Um... Let's talk about the about about the first spot. Um, so it's it's uh, for those who haven't who don't recall it. it was, it's Paul uh, Giamatti, uh, an actor from uh, Billions, and Kieran Culkin, who's phenomenal, plays this phenomenal role on HBO's Succession. Um, so these these are the two primary actors. We don't I don't think we see we don't really see Macaulay Cul I'm not Macaulay Kieran Culkin in the first spot. We see him in the second. But tell us about what's happening with that and and uh, what what the creative idea was or the creative concept. Yeah. So the the premise was really you know how do you take this this excess culture and do some some smart humorous commentary on it and the natural sort of foil in the story is uh, the uh, the celebrity, right? They It's very easy to think about, you know, the extravagant lifestyles many celebrities lead. You know, you, you hear all the time about like the exotic animals that they're buying or, you know, the many homes that they have or just some ex absurd things that they do. I guess the most recent one was Kim Kardashian's 40th birthday that's on right. an island that happened this week. Uh, that's the meme that's going around right now. And and so that that is a known thing. So so we're playing into this notion of celebrities are extravagant, and so that becomes this representative of this culture of excess. And the character, this this poor celebrity accountant, whose sad lot in life is to try to rein in this person's excess. And so you see, sort of these two ways of living and the ways of thinking are exactly like the way VW sees the world. There's there's the way we approach things and and then there's this other way. And so you have the interaction of these two quite humorously, you know, you hear through the perspective of the celebrity accountant all that he has to kind of put up with um, <laughs> in coaching his his clients uh, day in and day out. It's a it's a tough life and and brilliantly uh, performed by uh, by Paul Giamatti. No, a solid gold jet ski is not deductible. And a silly question, won't it sink? All right, I'm going to get back to you. I'm going to get back. People ask me what sort of a person should become a celebrity accountant, and I tell them nobody. Nobody should. There's nothing wrong with liking privacy, but I just don't think you need a separate private plane. 
but I, but I want it. You can't claim that as a dependent because it's inanimate. That's what they pay me for. Not enough, though. Not nearly enough. Hey, buddy, what's the damage? I bought it. The waterfall. Nope. My new Volkswagen. A Volkswagen? Wow. Uh, I think we're having a breakthrough here. Welcome to Caesar's Palace. Wait, you're in Vegas? Sure looks like it. What, what, thank you. What are you doing back there? The first film ends with uh, the client, you know, having this breakthrough of having bought the Volkswagen, right? So the Volkswagen becomes this, this moment where our accountant is feeling like he's finally gotten through to this client, but it concludes with the client pulling up to um, a hotel in Las Vegas. So naturally, now the accountant is nervous that uh, this responsibility streak or this this savvier way of, of handling his money has actually uh, perhaps not not fully set in. So, so the story continues with them um, in Vegas. So I remember I saw the first spot and I was thinking, oh, uh, this is this is an ongoing storytelling uh, concept. So and and that was the intent of this the yeah. pandemic out of the way. So then the second spot is rolled out. Is there a, is I will play we'll play both spots here on the uh, track. Uh, hello there. I'm looking for my client. Very expensive looking young man. A lot of bracelets. I'm sorry, sir. We're not able to give out any information. I'm his accountant. He needs me. I'm so sorry. <sighs> hey. Hey, 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 hey! Uh, hey, man! Woo. You're here! Yeah. Oh, be honest. You don't trust me here in Vegas, do you? Uh, well, uh, you do have a history. I thought we had a breakthrough with the Volkswagen. We did. Yes. Yeah, we broke through. Okay. That's the Volkswagen? That's the crossport. Wow. Oh, do you need me to move up? Seatbelts. Oh, please tell me we're not going there. Please just tell me where we're going. Is there a third? Is it continue or, or like where does it go from here? Uh, we'll have to see. We we definitely had uh, some more stuff in uh, in the can, so uh, a lot just sort of depends on broader business <laughs> situation. So will that? Will, I mean, it, have the first two spots gone into sort of social uh, versions of it that have been used on those platforms, like shorter versions, or? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so we we have it all all through the line. Um, it's uh, you know, and and cut downs and things like that. We we also have some product specific product feature specific um, stories that don't feature um, our, our brilliant celebrities uh, just to kind of get a little bit more mileage for uh, for the dealers touting uh, some of the uh, the great benefits of the car in in tier two. Thank you so much. This has been great. Oh, well, thank you, Fergus. I really appreciate it. Really great. Mary Bakarich. Did I pronounce that right? Bakarich. Yep. Mary Bakarich, uh, Group Strategy Director, Johannes Leonardo in New York. Um, congratulations to the agency for getting so much done in short period of time 20 uh, 2019 february 2019 uh, it's terrific work and and it's 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 brilliantly pulled together it all makes total sense when you look back to the dna of the brand and you've kind of taken it through a great uh, modern day lens uh, it's terrific work thanks for being with us today uh, thank you fergus my pleasure and we'll see everybody in the next episode <laughs>